Good morning, church. Welcome to first service here. Um, I want to introduce our storyteller for our service today, and it is Robin Pearson. Robin, come on up. She uh, is just such a wonderful person. I've been in small group with her. It's been a joy to get to know her and her family. Excited for you to hear from her. So, Robin, here you go. Nice. I was, I was really nervous for that. Good morning, friends. Um, there's going to be some pictures going, I think, while I'm up here. And just to let you know, the, so you have context, the one in the middle there that's squatting down with the longer hair, that's Bryn. She's our oldest. She's eight. Lila's the one going like this. She's six. And Emily down there is almost two. So that way you know. So I love a good birth story. Don't you? <laughs> Since it is, after all, Mother's Day, I thought I would share one of mine with you. Each of our girls had their own unique way of entering this world, but the journey of getting our second daughter here has been one of the most faith-building periods of my life. When Bryn, our oldest, was 10 months old, I was excited to be pregnant again. At our first ultrasound, no heartbeat was found, but blood work showed that I was pregnant, so we waited a couple weeks and prayed. At the next ultrasound, still no heartbeat, but as the tech looked around more, she found another baby simultaneous uterine and ectopic pregnancies. The next several hours were a blur as we rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery and a DNC. I remember the weeks that followed as hormones left my system, still experiencing the, the symptoms of pregnancy, but without the anticipation of a baby. It felt cruel and I was so grateful to come home to a cute, squishy toddler to help soothe my sadness. A few months later, we were expecting again and at our first ultrasound, my doctor found the largest subchorionic hemorrhage, aka giant blood clot, she had ever seen, and I was told to go home and expect a miscarriage within days. I was crushed and afraid. Amazingly, I continued to carry the baby, but then came weekly ultrasounds and warnings of impending miscarriage and various levels of bed rest. During those months, I learned how to accept help from others, not easy for this independent firstborn, and how to choose hope, even though my heart constantly tried to grieve a baby that my doctors had no confidence in, but also couldn't believe was still alive. At my 16-week appointment, I was already so weary of not being able to hold Bryn or do some of the mundane housework that made me feel normal. I begged God to give me a miracle and take away the blood clot, and also in his kindness, would he consider giving Bryn a sister? My name was called, and I heard a voice inside say, it will be enough. What? The result of the ultrasound said the blood clot had shrunk just enough for me to be off strict bed rest. The tech and I had become friends, and even though she wasn't supposed to tell me this early, she said she felt like she should tell me that I was carrying another girl, a sister for Bryn. I left the appointment knowing that voice had been God, telling me that what he was giving me that day was enough, and he was right. He didn't answer my prayer in the way I wanted, but instead, he knew what my heart needed, and he gave me that. I have never felt so known or so loved. At 30 weeks, I saw a specialist, and miraculously, the hemorrhage had disappeared. I went to my normal doctor and had another ultrasound since that tech had become an expert on my uterus. She couldn't find it either. My doctors were amazed. I praised God, and we went home to enjoy pregnancy like normal people. 
Lila came rushing into this world on St. Patrick's Day, and I remember often what a struggle it was to get her here, and how I can't imagine life without her sweet little voice, and how she literally skips in cartwheels through each day. Sacrificing my desires to exercise, pick up my toddler, my pride in being self-sufficient, in order to help my unborn child survive, was really hard. Life has gone on. We've added a third daughter. Mark always said he wanted to be outnumbered. But every day, I look into Lila's face and I see my own personal miracle. She is a testimony of God's deep love for me. And I thank you for listening to my story today. By the way, you should see that that last picture was Easter, and there, I'm, there are like 37 pictures on my phone to get that one. And most of it's Emily over there, and yeah. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from Ephesians chapter 5 in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word of the Lord. Happy Mother's Day again to all of you. How many of you were brought here or invited here or are here because of a mom or a grandma or some, somebody like that bringing you to church this morning. <laughs> uh, my mom hasn't dragged me here, but uh, in honor of her, I'm wearing a suit just because she, she grew up, she's Presbyterian, and I'm not at church if I'm not wearing a suit. That's kind of how she decides uh, what qualifies for a roll call here at church. Uh, before I go into the sermon today, just a... Uh, comment about Nicholas Fund for Education. I was here last night, and I was reminded again in a new thought. And every year, I kind of have a new thought about things. And uh, uh, one thought I had yesterday was, consider the alternative. If the students that we are sponsoring and making a way for and empowering and investing in, if we weren't doing that, what would be their alternative? And I kind of imagined life for them without the... Uh, the force of the school in their life that's shaping them and giving them a worldview and a self-view that's so, uh, it would be utterly impossible without Nicholas Fund for Education. You know, they have a culture that's loving and devoted teachers and people over here praying and supplying their needs. And that creates a culture there that's nurturing and seeing of them and that's investing of them and their worth. They're, beginning, they're getting closer to how God views them uh, rather than how they experience life outside of Nicholas Fund for Education. So as I thought about that, I was just really thankful and glad we get to be a light. And that's, I think, in a huge way what the Bible means when it says calls for Christians to be a light and salt in this world. So Nicholas Fund and all those of you who carry the weight of it, good job. And I hope uh, many of you will consider not only uh, giving but also going so that you can feel connected to it uh, in your personal life. Okay. Uh, today we're going to continue in our series in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 today. And the theme that I want us to kind of dip our toes in 
is sacrifice. And the angle that I want us to consider today is how more than ever, I believe, because of our culture and the way our culture has set itself up, more than ever, I'm able to appreciate the necessary nature of sacrifice. We know first that Jesus sacrificed and this fact that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. That sentence right there, Jesus died according to Scripture, is the single most differentiating tenet of the Christian faith. In all other religions, you don't have a God who dies for you. They use you. You are convenient to them. We are awfully inconvenient to God. And that's really what the gospel is, that God loves us, that he is love towards us, and that love expressed itself in the greatest way that love can possibly be expressed. Jesus himself said so. And that's why this is the single most differentiating tenet of the Christian faith, the necessary nature of sacrifice, requisite Sacrifice. Let's start uh, with Jesus here. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says this, For I delivered to you as a first importance, or most importance, or primary importance, or foundational importance. This is it. This is what the whole show is built on. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. If you take away nothing from Christianity, if you have no other belief in your heart or in your mind, this is the one you should hold on to, that Christ died for you, that he sacrificed for you according to the scriptures. And that's important because not all sacrifices are created equal, not all deaths are created equal, and because of the uh, necessary nature of sacrifice, not all gods are created equal. We have a unique God, we have a living God, we have a God who sacrifices. One more verse, uh, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. There's no other expression of love that's greater than this. Nothing penetrates through all our defenses, all the arguments we have. We are completely laid vulnerable and humbled when somebody dies for us in a sacrificial way. By their loss, we gain. By their death, we live. That idea is absolutely unique to Christianity, that a God would do that. And that's what we have as the foundation of not just what we believe, but why we believe. That's how we know there's a veracity to the Christian faith. Because if there's a God who seeks to gain from us, if we worship him, if we trust him, if we follow him, if we do the things that we say Christians are supposed to do, but God's gaining, he's just using us, we can, we can sense that. We have really sensitive antennas to pick up that kind of signal. And yet here is a God whose demand of us is simply to respond to what he first did. 
All other religions live this way, give this way, serve this way, and then maybe after I weigh the scales, I'll help you out. But you have to sacrifice. You have to make promises. And here we have Christ making the sacrifice. This is the essence of uh, Christianity. Now, Luke, our friend Luke, who wrote the book Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, has a unique bent to this idea of sacrifice. His whole theology is not just that Jesus died for us, but that he had to die for us. It was requisite. It was necessary. And so there are several verses you can read in the uh, sermon notes, but I'm going to just give you a couple of them. Luke 24, 26 says this, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? And that's really, I think, what makes Christ's sacrifice so unique, his death, that it was required. Somehow it had to be. And then Acts 17, that Ruth wrote also, he says this, uh, this is describing Paul's ministry. He says, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, giving evidence that Christ had to suffer. Not just that he suffered, but that he had to suffer. Now, why do you think so? Why did he have to suffer? A couple of reasons. John chapter 12, verse 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, this is a farming metaphor. And in that agrarian culture, they understood this, right? A seed has no value whatsoever unless it itself ceases to exist as a seed. The seed must decrease so that the life that it holds potentially can increase. That's the whole nature. That's the whole deal with seeds. And that's how fruit is born. And that's what John is telling us. There's, there's something about the way nature works that when, when something dies, it gives birth to life. And so that's partly the, a clue we get, that Jesus had to die so that we could live. There was no way for us to live unless he died. He's the seed, we are the fruit. For us to exist, the seed had to die. Uh, John 12, 32, again says this, and if I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And in this passage, this is a testimony by Jesus talking about his own pending death. When Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, he's talking about uh, being lifted up onto the cross. He's not talking about visibility. He's talking about the manner in which he is to die. So there's a literal appreciation for this. But also... Also, lifted up from the earth, meaning when people see my death, when they see sacrifice, when they take in, then they can appreciate what this is about. There's something that clicks when you see sacrifice. Then we are going to be drawn to him. There's something that pushes obstacles and arguments Resistance out of the way, the universal solvent that is sacrifice. It's able to melt the hardest hearts. Okay, one more. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness 
of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And Paul is making the exact same point. And I hope you're beginning to formulate, complete your own picture of why a sacrifice is necessary. Now, baptism, that's the, you know, the physical work of converting somebody. It's the external, visible sign of the inward reality of salvation. So Paul's saying he's de-emphasizing that aspect of his work. He later goes on to argue that who did the baptizing, it doesn't matter. That's irrelevant because it's just expressing the actual reality, which is on the inside, right? So he's saying, let's, let's not lose our hair over this. But what's really important is not even my words, Paul says. I'm a smart guy. I can argue. I can be persuasive. Captain of the debate team, educated at all the best schools by all the best teachers for as long as necessary at the top of my game and field. And yet none of it matters, Paul says. None of it matters because the power, and right? And that's what John's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. What Paul is saying, saying again here, is that the power comes from the cross that is the death, the sacrifice of Christ. I don't know about you, But the Bible seems to understand our nature. It seems to know who we are and what it takes, how we operate. That we cannot be convinced. We would not follow him in an enduring way. We couldn't push back against all the pushback we get unless we see the Son of Man lifted up, hanging, dying on a cross on our behalf. The cost of his life for the fullness of our life. That's necessary. We have this theology and logic of sacrifice as the basis then for the approach, our approach to each other. This passage that we read today, we'll read it again together, short, is framing out our approach to one another based on the reality that sacrifice and only sacrifice can cause us to be truly changed. Okay, verse 1, 2, 6, and 25. Therefore, be imitators of God. So there's something that God did that we're to imitate. As beloved children, underscoring the fact that God loved us, so we ought to love. So that's when we love, we're not loving from our own heart, from our own will, by our own strength, but with God's love, we love. There's some theology of being, us being an empty vessel here. Okay, verse 2, and walk in love, not our love, right? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice that phrase, fragrant aroma. There's something attractive about sacrifice. You know, you, kind of, you may ask, like, why the blood? Why the guts? What, what kind of primitive, you know, religion is Christianity? Why would you all sing about blood? And it's just so weird. You know, there's words for people like you. And, and yet, I think we can't help but deny the fact that when we see somebody dying in the stead of somebody else, then we experience that as a fragrant aroma. It's beautiful. 
It's moving, it's compelling, it's inspirational, and it's transformative. You think the world, the world can, the, the culture can judge Christianity and call it primitive and unnecessarily bloody and weird and weirdos. And yet, all the songs that they like, all the movies that they ever make, they only have one card to play. And that's the sacrifice card. Always. Whatever the movie it is. If a guy wants to win the girl, how does he do it? At first, he's just good looking and that's enough. He's charming or he makes money. But eventually there's a conflict and he has to show the authenticity, somehow prove his commitment towards her. And it's through sacrifice. It's always that way. When Bruce Willis wanted to save the world from a meteorite that was heading towards earth, what did he have to do? He couldn't blow it up from the comfort of his living room by pressing a button on his iPhone. That's not fragrant aroma. No, nobody in the world is looking twice at that. But if he sacrifices for his daughter and a son-in-law that he doesn't approve of, and he lets everybody else go back home and he kills himself, then it's a fragrant aroma. That's just the way it is. And we know this. We experience this, right? Let no one... Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. And here's what we know. Unless somebody's words and even somebody's actions, unless they're verified by sacrifice, it's what we would call empty. Empty gestures, empty words, tokenism. It's manipulative. It's mercenary. And then 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The whole idea of this chapter is built around the necessary nature of the sacrifice of God's Son on our behalf. That is the foundation of of love and the foundation of life, sacrifice. Unless it costs something, and especially if it costs somebody else their life, then and only then do we have planted in us an enduring seed that will blossom into some kind of trust and ultimately worship. There's no other way. And this is really counterculture. There's nothing that quite speaks like sacrifice. We live in a culture that's outright individualistic and consumeristic. That's what we're up against. It's a really easy thing to defeat. It's so fragile. Individualism, it smells so bad. Counter, uh, counter to individualism, so easy. So simple. Because being individualistic is so shallow. That's the most natural, most intuitive, the easiest thing to do is to think about yourself. If you look at a group picture, nobody has to tell you, convince you to go find the picture of you in that group picture. That's the person we're most and first interested in. And your first thoughts are, is my, is my chin getting bigger? 
is that, I, I, I don't remember having great, what, was I asleep? Was I tired? You're judging, assessing, because we're, we know the world all around is consumeristic. Whether they accept us, love us, care for us, tolerate us, value us, legitimize us, validate, all that's dependent on the factors that they judge, which is built around their individualism. So we're all out there sort of just worried about the other person while simultaneously being totally and utterly focused on our own selves and our viewpoint. That's the culture out there. That's what sells. You know, even Christianity, uh, several years ago there was this book written and it was uh, introduced this uh, phrase, as, I think it's a beautiful phrase, it's moralistic therapeutic deism. And based on individualism and consumerism, our religion, our Christianity, has just become that. Moralistic, we're worried about our external behavior. Therapeutic, but ultimately it's about how do I feel about this? Do I feel good? Am I feeling better as a person? Am I improving? Deism, God's part of the picture. So God is useful for keeping me a good person and keeping me a growing person. But that's all God is useful for. Ultimately, we're consuming God based on our self-interest. The religion that the Bible talks about is the exact opposite. It's saying that I believe I am no good as a person and we are no good as a people and we are going to self-destruct as a society if the locus of our authority is not outside of ourselves. If we don't have values that we're submitting to, to believe in God, to be a Christian, on some practical level simply just means that. That you locate authority outside of yourself. That before you just do what you want to do, you ask, what should I do? What ought I do? And how I feel about a thing is secondary to what is right and what is good and what is true. And so we live a submitted life. That's the essence of what it looks like. But for us to trust this authority outside of ourselves, this authority outside of ourselves has to be trustworthy. And how do we know they're not going to use us and abuse us and spit us out? How do we know we can trust this authority outside of ourselves? How can we stop being individualistic? How can we stop being consumeristic? Well, because they sacrifice for us. That's the only test that's going to demolish our natural bent towards individualism and consumerism. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's code. Okay, that phrase, disobedient to their parents, back in the day, if you translate it to our culture, it means they're anti-authoritarian. They don't know how to locate authority outside of themselves. That's what that means. They're beginning to see themselves as the final authority. They get to decide. So that's what that, that is. Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Boy, you are not safe if you don't have self-control. If you are just, again, doing whatever you want to do instead of controlling yourself from the outside, you are not safe. Okay, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Got to love that phrase. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. 
and avoid such people. They're toxic people. There's toxicity there that Paul is naming. Have you heard this thing about vampires and toxic people? You know the three rules of vampires? Have you heard this? First one is they will always suck the life out of you. The second rule is they can't see their own reflection. That's a good one. They lack self-awareness. And third, you have to invite them in. They can't come into your life unless you invite them into your life. And that's what Paul is saying. Avoid such people. Don't let them in. They're toxic. They're going to suck the life out of you. And they don't have self-awareness. They know not which they do. The market differentiator, if you want to be an effective Christian, if you want to shine at all, if you want to be visible, if you want to be noticed for your faith, you can't do it by being smart. You can't do it by being savvy. You can't say, you know what, I'm going to just be a great businessman and I'm going to be kind of generous. It doesn't work because they know you don't feel it. What does it cost you? What does it cost you to claim that you are a Christian? You're invisible to them. You blend right in to the sea of individualism and consumerism. Friedman, my favorite psychiatrist, says, people can only hear you when they're moving towards you. Friends, ask the question, is the culture moving towards Christians? They can't hear you because they're not moving towards us, right? And I wanted to really highlight this idea today uh, because, in, and in some ways, I chose this book, uh, the book of Ephesians, for this chapter on this day because when I was doing my sermon planning, it was Mother's Day, and I, I wanted to personally preach on chapter 3, I mean uh, chapter 5 uh, for Mother's Day because I have, a, I have this view about women in general and moms in specific, and I find that women understand this concept of sacrifice in general in a way that's wholly other than how men understand it. Historically and societally, culturally, we have given men the luxury to specialize. Women have been left to be generalists. That means they have to do more things. It means that they don't get to clock in and clock out. They don't get to put blinders on. But they're always kind of doing air traffic control, always on call because you don't want planes crashing. That's kind of the role that women have been invited to play. And so they are connected and aware of others in a way that I think men would be shocked to discover if they had to really be a woman for a day or for a week or a month. It would be shocking to them. Women have been forced, in a way, to play this support role. Women have been forced, I have that in quotes, because people interpret that differently, forced to operate under authority, which strips away the luxury of them you know, being self-centered. They've had to be other-centered. Women have been expected to put others before them, to clean up, to carry on, and the whole time they have to look beautiful and smell nice while they're doing it. It's true. I, I'm going to tell you a story. It makes me look awful. It's not even like from a year ago or 10 years ago. It's from two days ago. This is me. And this is my male privilege coming through. And it's just 
every day. This is just one of the everyday stories of what it's like for me to be a man and surrounded by women. Uh, we were going out on a date night, and uh, my wife, uh, she's come back from work, had a really long day, really long morning, really long night the night before. That's her life. Um, but she's hurrying. She's scrambling, uh, getting dinner ready for the kids so that we can go out. And uh, I thought, you know, I can use this time to sneak in a workout. And I didn't think about that. I just thought, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and she's doing what she's supposed to do. Honestly, that's not even true. I didn't even know what she was doing. <laughs> I didn't know how she was spending her time. I didn't think about how the kids were going to have dinner. I did not think through any part of the evening except for what we were going to have for dinner. That's what I was, me and my wife, I mean, where we were going to go out to eat. That was my concern. And I come upstairs, and we get, and then grab her, and we get in the car, and uh, we sit down in the car, and we turn and we smile at each other. We're happy that this moment is happening. And the first thought in my head is, she smells a little bit like grease or food or something. <laughs> Why didn't she get ready? I got ready for our date. And that was my thought as we pulled out of the driveway. And it wasn't like until an hour later I realized, I don't know, we got to talking about our kids. She had been slaving away all day, you know. And now she's exerting extra hard to stay connected and enthusiastic to match my energy and enthusiasm level. But probably she's just really tired and wants to go to bed, you know. There's no ending to this story. This is just to be continued. <laughs> That's why that's a powerful story. <laughs> I don't know. My, my brain gets real technical and weird. You know, I think about this idea of giving birth and just the baby inside literally sucking. Vamp babies are vampires now I think about it. <laughs> they suck the life out of you. They have no self-awareness whatsoever. And it's your fault. You let them in. I learned this several years ago, this fascinating uh, science piece about how through childbirth, women have the husband's DNA in her for the rest of her life. Through childbirth, men and women, husband and wife, become literally biologically on a DNA level one because when the baby starts growing in the belly, in order to uh, you know, uh, bribe the mom to letting it stay, the rent that it pays is it gives stem cells and uh, its own DNA to the mom. And the mom has the baby stem cells and DNA all over her, and it's helping her to be a healthier uh, carrier of itself. It's very self-centered. But that's the father's DNA. And I was just amazed to learn about this, that through my children, Susie has, like, we are one. That's amazing to me. That's a powerful thing. But that's at the cost of her. You know, like Susie has sensitivity to cold and hot, and she has to use this expensive $30 tube of toothpaste. That's sacrifice. For me. I mean, I have to pay for it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you a couple of rules of sacrifice here, and uh, we're going to end with that. Number one rule. All of us, all of us, I believe, have inside, underneath the individualism and the consumerism, we have underneath that alive in us, I believe, 
a desire to be transcendent, to live beyond ourselves, Not to live, but to die. Not to get, but to give away. I believe that that impulse is put there by God and represents the image of God. And we want to do it. And we know this because when we experience it, either ourselves or visually we see a movie or hear a story or on the receiving end of it, it touches us. It changes us. Where does that come from? Why, why do you have that reaction? How do you explain that? I'm telling you, I don't know, but my big educated guess is that there's no other creatures with this level of consciousness to respond that way to sacrifice. I believe that's a uniquely human trait that allows us to lay down our life because on some level, on some hardwiring level, we want to die for somebody else because that's who God is. So there's a, uh, that's the first rule I want you to know. You want to sacrifice. The second rule of sacrifice is it has to be costly. It has to be inconvenient. It has to be felt. There has to be some kind of loss for it to land. If you want your marketing strategy to be effective, you got to give up on the marketing and you got to just do whatever you got to do. That's it. Because even if your image improves, that chips away at the value of the sacrifice because you're gaining something. There's something kind of, uh, it has to be a total loss. And to the extent that it approaches that, you know, and that's the death of your life, right? But to the extent that it approaches that, to the extent that you, you are communicating God's love to the world. First uh, Chronicles 21, 24 says this, but King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or a burnt offering, which costs me nothing. David understood that. Another rule of sacrifice is it has to endure. The first rule of love is love is patient. It's to the end. You know, it's easy to, in that critical moment, jump in front of a train or some, push somebody out of, the, you know, out of the way. You can do that. That's, that could be sort of an impulse, like the trolley experiment or sorts. But to do it daily, to do it for the long haul to the end. Then that's John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, and here it is, he loved them to the end. He finished. He completed it. There's a, there's a long-haul nature to sacrifice. And uh, I want you to consider the alternative uh, to sacrifice, which is empty words. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I think it's really powerful. I'm, I feel safer knowing that we're not judged by our words We're not judged even by our actions. You can sacrifice physically. But God knows our hearts. And so in our hearts, we have to have his love in us. 
the love that's founded on sacrifice. And in this call to love others, this is the final rule of uh, sacrifice. Verse 25, just as Christ. This is the key. There is a way that Christ sacrificed. And that's the way that Christians are called to sacrifice. And not all sacrifice is equal. And so we're going to end on this note. How was Christ able to sacrifice to the end? How was Jesus able to do it? Because we're supposed to do it the way he did it. Okay, ready? This takes the edge off. And that's the rule of paradox. We have Acts chapter 20, verse 35, that says this. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here's what we know. We experience it as sacrifice when we are sacrificing. But on some level, we have to believe that this sacrifice leads to a kind of blessing. And that's where the idea of faith comes in. We don't sacrifice out of our human strength, but we sacrifice as Jesus did, which is by faith, believing that there is a blessing. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Okay, that's treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. So the man has an ulterior motive. And that's the treasure. And so through the eyes of faith, we see how sacrifice leads to treasure. So we sell everything, meaning we give everything over to gain that blessing. That treasure. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith, by definition, is seeking reward in legitimate ways. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, a sacrifice, but count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, this is how Jesus sacrificed, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he didn't do it for misery's sake, he did it for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. By faith, Jesus died. Faith, believing there was joy beyond the cross. And finally, Hebrews 11, uh, 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so this is the Christian logic. God sacrificed for you because there was no other way. It was necessary. But because he sacrificed, he completed the sacrifice. There is no more required of you and I a sacrifice. It's not necessary for us. The sacrifice that was necessary was satisfied by Christ. And you and I then, by faith now, can look to the sacrifice that is Christ. And he rewards us for believing that his sacrifice was sufficient. That all the sacrifice, in quote-unquote, that you and I are called to do is a way to get the reward. Not to actually suffer 
loss. And this is the promise of Christ's sacrifice for you and I. We live by faith and not by sacrifice is what the Bible says. And so I want to give you a formula as our ending. Faith allows us to sacrifice with an eye to the reward. Would you bow your heads with me? God, today we especially um, thank you for this aspect of your love for us, that you laid down your life for us, that your sacrifice was complete and whole and effectual. It's complete. It is finished, and we can now sacrifice knowing that we have the reward which you have won through your sacrifice. And God, we also are so mindful and so grateful for our moms and all the women in our life who nurture us and sacrifice for us and think of us and serve us day in and day out for the long haul. We love them in so many ways because they have first loved us. And may they not lose their reward in Jesus' name. Amen.